The Drum Candy Podcast is brought to you by Drum Factory Direct. everyone welcome into episode two of season two of the drum candy podcast this is your host mike dawson coming to you from drum factory direct in pittsburgh pennsylvania thank you all for tuning in to the first episode of this new season this new format your feedback has been much appreciated i was uh quite nervous about changing up the show but so far at least from everyone i've heard from they're digging it. I did make a few changes. The microphone I was using last week, which was the Shure SM7B, which every broadcaster loves, um, it was super noisy. So I apologize for some of the quality issues that in my voice last week. Now I changed it up to this is a Mini K47 by Rosball Mics. Uh, it's a condenser mic, smaller condenser mic. Hopefully it's a little bit crisper and clearer. Um, I think I'll stick with this one if it's cool. But, you know, that's it's the name of the game. We're always trying new things and, and learning and growing as we go. This week, our intro beat was supplied by Luke Farron. Luke is another uh, member of the Drum Club Project. So anyone interested in participating, uh, we do it mostly through Instagram. If you just hashtag the Drum Club Project, you'll see all the previous entries that we've done. What we do is once a month, actually we're due to do one here soon, is once a month we put out a backing track or a loop um, and, then, and then you can download it and play to it or remix it or add elements to it whatever you want to do post that up to instagram and then we all get together you know afterwards and just check out everyone's work and just have a good time hanging out so that was luke farron he's been involved from the very beginning so let's lo- let luke explain a little bit about his beat hey all luke farron here in the northwest suburbs of chicago This beat submission was used for the Drum Factory Direct and Big Fat Snare Drum, the Drum Club Project. The track is called Some Kind of Solitude by TJ Hartman. I chopped up TJ's track, looped it, hit record, and improvised until something came out that felt decent. For gear, I played on a DW Collector's Maple Kit, 18x22 Kick, 8x10 and 9x12 Rack Toms, 12x14 Floor Tom with a Zildjian Zilbo placed on it, and a 14 by 16 floor tom with a big fat quesadilla. For snares, I used a Dunnett 6.5 by 14 aluminum 2N with a big fat quesadilla, as well as a 7 by 14 tie side snare with a big fat snamborine and a big fat necktie placed on it. I recorded through some pure microphones into a DAW and mixed it up with some plugins. It's been great participating in the Drum Club project. Thanks again to Mike and Ben for the creative outlet. Thanks, guys. All right. Thanks, Luke, for sending that in. If you want to get your beat added to the show, just send it over via email to drumcandypodcast at gmail.com. You can also shoot me a DM at the Drum Factor Direct Instagram or at my own Instagram, which is Mike Dawson Drums, with a link to download a video file. If you conclude uh, a separate video of you explaining what's happening, then we'll get your, your face and voice on the show as well. Again, that's it's drumcandypodcast at gmail.com. All right, let's shift over into some news. All right, some things that happened. Well, last week, uh, the the warehouse pick of the week was the Evans Pure Sound Classic Snare Tune-Up Kit, and we were a little bit slow to get those back in stock, so if any of you rushed over to the site on Friday or over the weekend, 
you might have seen that without a stock, but it's it's currently stocked up. We've got them back on the site. So if you like that combination of heads that I featured last week, which is an Evans Strata 1000 batter, the Orchestral 200 bottom, and Concert 16 snare wires, we're also throwing in a free pair of drumsticks. You can get that over at drumfactordirect.com. We are stocked up. It's the perfect combination of heads and wires, in my opinion, to turn an old vintage drum, to make an old vintage drum sound like it should, which is dark and raspy and super cool so check it out that's the evans classic snare tune-up kit available at drumfactordirect.com and last week i also talked about the brass hoops that we have back in stock the model number if you're looking for them is ha07 these are not brass finished they're not brass plated hoops they're actually solid brass hoops that then get chromed or there's some we have some with nickel which are really cool and a few with black nickel plating so it's a very it's not a it's not a it's not a brass looking hoop and there are some raw brass as well but it's it's different than the ones that look like brass these are solid brass that are then chromed and they are 2.5 millimeter thick so a little bit thicker and heavier than your standard 2.3 triple flange um we have various well we have a, a 10 hole nickel over brass combo to get you the batter side and the snare side we also have some eight lug black nickel and several sizes of the chrome over brass so those are the ha07 they're really, really fantastic. And like I said last week, once these are gone, they're gone. I don't know when we'll ever get more of them. Um, so if you've been interested in them, snag them now. That's the HA07 Brass Hoops. What's up next? So a little bit of industry news that I that I saw this week. Uh, one of my favorite drummers, previous guest on the show, Joey, Joey Wonker, who's currently, I believe, touring with Roger Waters. Uh, he switched to Vader drumsticks. So check out, be on the lookout for probably a signature stick in the works, but you know, he's moved over there, so Joey's now a Vader artist. Um, and if you get to go see him play with Roger Waters, definitely do. He's he's fantastic. His kit is ridiculous. <laughs> There's so many toms and just cool stuff happening. So yeah, congrats to Joey for making the switch over to Vader. All right, there's a bunch of new music that I saw that came out this week or very recently. First thing that popped up was JD Beck and Domi put out their album Not Tight. That record features, um, I mean, JD's a, a great young drummer and Domi's an amazing keyboardist, but that the record features some collaborations with Herbie Hancock and Anderson Pack and, and Thundercat. So it's a really, it's a really cool, interesting listen. So go check that out. That's Not Tight by JD Beck and Domi. Next up, another great drummer, Allison Miller. She released a duo record with uh, pianist Carmen Staff that is called Nearness. Allison is a fantastic modern jazz you know, I would say a modern drummer. She's just really, really fantastic. So check that record out. Allison Miller and Carmen Staff. The record is called Nearness. I'm not sure if it's mostly improvised or composed or combinations of both, but it's really a really cool dialogue between drums and piano on that one. And similarly, uh, the great modern jazz drummer, composer, new classical composer, just, just an amazingly talented musician. Taishan Sori has a trio record out called Mesmerism. So if you're a fan of uh, piano trio music i would say coming you know from the bill evans keith jarrett world taking it to the next step definitely check out that record taishan sorry the record is called mesmerisms it's a beautiful beautiful record we'll try to get taishan on the show here soon too and then the last new bit i saw was uh, the great funk rock hip-hop drummer daru jones is on a track called wasteland it's a new project called new originals features daru adrian Ballou. The great guitarist Jerry Harrison, the Talking Heads, Danka, 
and it's uh, it was created by Dave Brandwine of Turkhouse, who I'm not familiar with, but the track is called Wasteland. I found it on Apple Music. I'm sure it's Spotify and everywhere else. It's really cool to see Daru, you know, just lay it down. It's super funky. Great drummer. So check that one out. That's Daru Jones on the track Wasteland by New Originals. All right, that's it for, for news for this episode. Let's shift over into our main topic. What does snare head tuning actually do? So after last week's episode where I talked about you know, what does the diameter of a snare drum do to affect the sound and tone and feel of a snare? And I kept saying that I always start with C sharp over F sharp. And me being the ever questioning my own choices type of personality, I decided, well, maybe this week I should talk about what does the bottom head of a snare drum actually do? And let's just mess around with a ton of different tunings to see what relationship to confirm or maybe so uh, a monkey wrench into my philosophy that a perfect fourth is my favorite spread with the bottom being higher so what i'm doing this week is i have one drum it's a pretty unique drum if you haven't seen this it's called a dial tune i've got it right here so give me one second so this bad boy super cool it has two big old knobs and, and a bunch of pulleys so you can tune the batter head and but just by cranking it all at once or the bottom head by cranking the other knob all at once so you can quickly go from all the way loose to as high as it possibly can go in a matter of seconds so we're using this drum dial tune this is a six and a half by 14 maple drum with um, a dark stained finish it's a maple shell and so what I'm doing is I'm getting the batter head kind of where I think I'd like it and then going through all the possible bottom side tensions to really just explore what what does the bottom head really do does it contribute to the tone and the resonance and all that stuff in any way or is it strictly just to allow those snares to vibrate so the first this is going to be a two-part segment because it went a little bit long in the first part here i'm i'm trying to negate the batter head as much as possible so the first thing i do hang on i've got another product here so the first thing I did was I put on this Evans DB1 practice head, which is a mesh head with, you can see it's got some foam around the inside and a dot. So it's a, it's not a silent head, but there's no tone to speak of. So I, I, I wanted to get the batter head out of the equation. So I'm just hitting this DB1 tuned to like a normal response. And then all we're hearing is what is the bottom side and the shell doing. So we go through that, all the different up and down of the bottom head, um, trying to settle on like, where does it feel like the drum is, is giving me something interesting or a full sound or a nice response or a certain crispness? When do the wires actually become activated? That's the stuff I'm listening for. It translates, I think, to the microphone, but... It's not the most exciting thing to listen to of me just smacking the drum over and over and again and detuning the bottom head, but I feel like that was the best way to do it rather than playing a bunch of beats at, with different tunings. It's just the whole range quickly up and down. So I do that with this, you'll see here in a bit. And then, then I put a normal batter head on and tuned it up pretty tight. And then I went with semi-muted with the big fat snare drum mute here and do the same thing. So now, I'm trying to figure out does the batter head play any role into what I think the bottom head tension should be if it's fully muted, but it's with a regular drum head. So you're getting some tone, but 
it's dampened. There's not the overtones of an open head. And then next week, I'll we'll drop in the segment where I just use the wide open coated ambassador batter head. So you know, let's get to it. Let's check it out. Here is what does the snare head bottom head tuning actually do? The first thing I wanted to do to see what does the bottom head of a snare drum tuning actually do to the sound was to try to eliminate the batter head from the equation as best as I could. So what I've got on this drum is an Evans DB1, which is their new low volume practice mesh head. It has It's a mesh head with some foam strategically placed around the center and a dot. So you get this kind of sound. So there's not much coming from the batter head, just a little bit of tone and a little bit of stick sound. I have it tuned up uh, pretty tight, normal kind of medium-high snare drum tension. So we're going to use this sort of zeroed-out batter head to see, can you really hear a difference if I detune the bottom head on this drum? This is a dial-tuned drum, which allows me to tune the entire bottom head with this fancy knob on the side, which is pretty cool. Um, so let's just see what we got. Right now I have the bottom head pretty much as high as it can go. Let's see if I can get any more out of it. That's pretty much it. So the bottom head is as high as it can go. Let's turn the snares on. Get a general snare drum tension. Let's see what we got. This sounds like a decent starting point. So I'm going to just play single notes and gradually detune the bottom head until I get all the way down to where it's completely loose. And I'm just curious if it's really noticeable maybe until you get down to where it's super loose. But let's just check it out and see what happens. All right, now we're down to completely detune. Here's the bottom head. It's in papery mode. So again, now I'm gonna go all the way back up real quickly and then all the way back down, and then we'll kind of assess what's happening. So we're gonna start super low. With each note, I'm gonna just add a little bit more tension. All right, we're back all the way up at super high. It's as high as this, this dial tune will go. See if I can get any more out of it. I want to just go all the way back down and all the way back up one more time before, because I want to make sure what I'm hearing and feeling is actually what's happening. So one more time, all the way up and all the way down. This is riveting, I know.
Okay. What am I noticing, at least from my perspective? I don't know exactly what the mics are capturing. We'll listen more in detail in the mix, but um, I don't hear much of a difference until the bottom head gets super, you know, not super loose, but loose enough to where now it's just dead. To where So the snares don't really come into play with this test until the bottom head is under at least a medium or medium high tension. Below that, they just, they're just dead. There's no response. The higher I got, the tighter the response got, the kind of crisper and fuller, surprisingly. I don't hear any pitch change, which I thought was a, was a bit surprising. All right, what we're gonna do now is I'm gonna swap out this DB1 for the stock single ply coated head that came with it. And we're gonna see if now having both heads resonate, if any of these factors you know, if the bottom head tuning comes more into play with the overall sound of the drum versus just the snare response. Because with this test, the bottom head is only affecting snare response. So let's swap it out. All right, I've got the single ply coated original batter head that came with the Daltoon drum, which happens to be a remote coated ambassador back on. I tensioned it up pretty much as high as it can go just to get it seated. Before we do the wide open batter head, to see how that reacts with the bottom head tuning. I wanna try going in the middle, happy middle, and throw on one of these big fat snare drum mutes and see, cause this will partially deaden the batter head. So it won't be as completely dead as the Evans, which has no real receivable pitch or tone. To now a muted, fully muted batter head, currently tuned tight. So let's see what, if I leave the batter head tight, with the big fat snare drum and then mess with the bottom head tuning. We'll see what happens. So again, it's, it's currently cranked on the bottom and I'm gonna just take it down one step at a time. Check it out. That's all the way down, completely dead. No, no, I mean, there's snare response, but it, start, it sounds like I'm playing a, a broken drum. So what I wanna do this time is go up until I find where the bottom head actually plays, uh, you know, when the drum starts to sound like a drum, how low can it be before it's, you know, once it starts to sound like a drum that you might actually use. Let's see what happens. I'm going to say it's really hard to tell when it goes from being completely loose to just enough tension. I had to take it up pretty significant to really notice the difference from where I'm at. Again, the microphone's probably picking up something different. But this feels like a low bottom head tuning that could work. I'm not sure what the pitch is. Let's check it. 
pretty low. Um, I'm not even going to bother with the tune bot, but you can hear it's pretty low. Top head is higher than the bottom. It's almost a fourth, a reverse fourth. So normally I have the bottom head a fourth higher than the batter. This is the opposite where the batter is uh, almost a fourth separated from the above the bottom. Interesting observation. I've never gone for that type of sound. We'll listen to it again with the snares on. I don't know, I, could, I think I could use that. It's a complex sound. It's not as crisp and snappy and present. Um, I don't know if it, it is responsive at low volume. Yeah, interesting. There's a tuning I never would have tried with the big fat snare drum, have it be a fourth higher on top than on bottom. Now let's go up a bit more and try to find another sweet spot. All right, right there, wherever I landed, it sounds like now the heads are, you know, it's a tighter overall sound, punchier sound, let's see. The third. So, still, it, the biter head is still higher than the bottom, but it's a third now, um, and it still works. So having a lower bottom head than the top could be an option for you. Let's try a little bit higher. Kind of like this combo. Let's see what it is. So now the bottom head is a major second, I believe, above the top head. So now it's starting to feel like the familiar kind of response and punch coming back at me. Interesting. Let's take the batter head down a bit. No, you know what? Let's go straight to the wide open sound because now. Um, I'm having a whole bunch of different options here that pop up. I think having a muted head with a lower bottom head gives me a little like complexity, something like almost like um, looser wires without having to loosen the wires. Pretty cool. I hope that wasn't too nerdy for you. Um, next week we will explore the open sound of the drum with the bottom head tuning. And then it's maybe a little bit more interesting of a sound, but hopefully you learned something. I know I discovered that Maybe what I think I like all the time isn't always what I like, and I've got some other options to explore if a drum isn't giving me what I want, if it's giving me too much response or not enough response. You know, I can explore with closing up that gap between the top and bottom or reversing it or widening it. Orcs Drum Closet, Nashville's full-line drum store. 
Celebrating its 40th year in business, Forks is independently owned and operated in the heart of Music City. Specializing in drums and percussion, Forks offers great discounts on all major brands and will beat any retailer's advertised price. From new and used equipment, vintage drums, and marching and orchestral instrument, Forks has something for every drummer. They also offer professional rental, repair, and restoration services, as well as drum lessons. Stop by their storefront at 308 Chestnut Street in Nashville, Tennessee, or call 615-383-8343, or go online at ForksDrumCloset.com. So anyway, hopefully that was um, enough nerdy talk. Now let's shift over to our featured interview segment. This is the second part of my interview with Belief. Belief is an electronic dance music project between Stella Moskawa of the great indie rock band Warpaint and Brian Holland, who I kept calling Colin last week. Sorry about that, Brian. Brian Holland, a.k.a. Boombip, fantastic songwriter and electronic music producer. Their duo project Belief has a new record out. It's self-titled, so check that out for sure. And we're just gonna. This is the second half of my interview with them. So enjoy. Here's belief. Yeah, and we don't really have like a. We keep talking about creating a record of the improv sets in a way, like almost doing kind of weirdly like a live album, but mm-hmm. in a studio. You know, not at a venue, and being able to multi-track it and then tweak it from then, but. But yeah, like exploring more and more of that improvised nature of of um, how the project kind of started. Does it feel weird for you to not be on be behind a drum set on stage? No, it's so nice. Right, <laughs> <laughs> I like um, most of the when I am performing on stage, either playing, I've been playing a little bit of keyboards as well. Um, with other bands and and either that or playing drums and I'm just constantly sitting down and it's not good for like my um, vascular system it's not good for my bum you know just on a purely physiological level it's like quite boring Mm. so I like the idea of standing up without standing up and being like this is my solo (laughs) project you know I don't have to be a star or don't have to like fully perform in a way, but it's still, um, it still just feels different. And I know we've talked about, I think in the future when we do belief sets, we'll definitely incorporate some, some live drums in some mm. kind of, um, integrative or tasteful mm. way instead of just like, oh, just bashing along to like pre-recorded tracks, like having some kind of like, you know, there's so much technology now that allows a, a connection between what's happening in the MIDI world and what's happening in the acoustic world. So um, we're excited to, to kind of explore that given the opportunity. But um, but it's also really, it's really nice for me to take a break from this thing that, you know, when I have an idea, the only way I've been able to really express it in the past is through drums acoustic drums you know and there's only so far you can go with that and i've definitely not achieved like the peak of that necessarily but i think it was good for me as a musician to challenge myself with expressing the same kind of ideas and same influences but through different instruments that weren't necessarily instruments that i was really excited to to learn how to use and learn you know slowly over the course of my life time try and master to some degree um so that's really refreshing for me i think i 
kind of, I was more extreme with, okay, this is just what I'm doing and I'm not going to play any drums. And Brian was really, really gently and really respectfully was like, you know what, I think, I think the album could actually use a little bit of, of live drumming, like whether it's samples of your drumming and, and breaks and things like that. So we found a really nice way of incorporating that so it doesn't just sound like a kind of, you know, like a DJ playing with a live drummer kind of mm-hmm. thing, which I've seen a few of mm-hmm. those <laughs> collaborations um, and they're just not really, you know, it just feels like a bit novelty, feels a bit gimmicky and we still wanted to make a really great sounding record as opposed to like this vanity project or something. So mm-hmm. it was really, it was exciting and fun to kind of have that push from from Brian to be like, it could actually it could actually benefit the record to have a little bit of that that live yeah, energy. I remember, I, I, re- I remember too, because we, we discussed it and when I proposed it to you, yeah, I didn't want it to be like typical drum breaks because then yeah. like with the music we're doing it 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 can slip into that kind of trip hop dated sound pretty easily when you have like live mm-hmm. drums with some synths, mm-hmm. you know, it can and if it's instrumental, you it just instantly it's just like, you know, that sound. Yeah. And we wanted to be careful with that. So, you know, we found some fun creative ways to incorporate Stella's drumming to the record, whether that is her playing like a live hi hat and maybe a snare over some other hi hats and snare from a mm-hmm. drum machine. And it gives it kind of that extra layer and that kind of human feel that works really nicely because you can tell it's not just a drum machine, but mm-hmm. it also isn't just like a drum kit mic'd up, mm-hmm. you know, it, it had, mm-hmm. it had a, like a nice fun, fun vibe. I don't know if we ever, I guess we did record breaks out mm-hmm. at Rancho de la Luna and chop those up. But I was thinking like with kick drums, we didn't really use a live kick that no. much because that, it's pretty important to have that that tone at least really solid and really controlled grid, yeah really controlled and then percussion symbols mid-range stuff we get pretty loose with it and let stella kind of mm. do do her thing mm-hmm. there but we wanted it to, yeah. to get it to get that electronic feel we kind of mostly used drum machine kicks and let's go in if you don't mind going into the the writing process because this this fascinates me especially with this genre mm-hmm. when you could basically start anywhere. How do you guys start? What is the first note that gets played mm. or, or dropped in? I, I think it's, it just depends on the song. I don't think I personally, I'm pretty sure Brian would agree. I don't have a, um, like a go to formula for making music. It's more just, for me, I also don't have, I don't regularly with this kind of music have, you know, a melody in my head or a drum beat or something that's just like, oh, I've got to get this thing out. I've got to express this thing that's nah. just looping in my head. For me, it's more about um, kind of harnessing experimental moments in the studio when you're actually, you've just bought a new piece of gear or you're, you've, you know, you've, pulled something out of keyboard and you're just putting it through, oh, put it through this weird delay pedal or this harmonizer and then you kind of get an idea. So 
the general like three things that usually inspire me at like a drum break or a drum sound or a program drum. Um, mm. Some kind of arpeggiated chord movement, you know, whether it's like a programmed thing or sampled thing or something that I'm playing live and then build drums underneath that and other textures underneath that. And then the third one would be I often get very inspired by like um, a, a found sample of something and it could be a melodic thing it could be a vocal sample it could be something like that but that usually that's the thing that usually sets my imagination um on fire and then i can imagine all the other things happening but it's rarely like out of thin air i have this fully formed idea and then i go and have to find the specific instruments that will illuminate yeah. that idea or bring that idea to life so for me it's mostly just about having i have fun in the studio typically i'll um i'll kind of i'll be playing with something or experimenting with something and maybe learning how to use a drum machine or a synth or a sampler or something like that mm. And in, while you're in the process of the, the scholarly process of, okay, well, how do I connect to these things and how do I make sequences and blah, 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 then you just, like, start, oh, I kind of get the hang of it and then you start doing something and then all of a sudden you're out of, like, the manual mode and you're in creative mode and you have and you just kind of go somewhere with that and then you record that piece of music and then you might put a kick drum under it and all of a sudden it has a kind of life and then, I would keep that and develop that or I would send those ideas to to Brian and kind of try mm. and if I was sharing an idea with Brian, I would I would generally try and give it some kind of movement so it has like two or three acts or two or three changes. Um, it wouldn't be like here's just a drum loop that goes for seven minutes. Good luck, you know. Yeah. So that's <laughs> kind of how I, how I do things, yeah. Same, same for me. I'm mostly inspired by a sound. And when you have, you know, a synthesizer that has 128 presets on it, you could just start playing and then something clicks in your head where you're like, oh, I really like this sound. You come up with like a little something. It's just like a sketch. You mm -hmm. loop it, throw a kick under it. That's the typical process, I think. So it starts with just being inspired by mm -hmm. sound but that could be drums too and then you just you, it's just it's like inspired by sound and then build upon it and then kind of build it up and then subtract stuff and replace stuff if you need to but there's never really like when i the reason i love electronic music and have chosen to do electronic music is because i like playing with sounds and instruments and toys when i go into a studio if mm -hmm. i I've gone, I've gone into a few writing rooms where they have the standard like Fender Rhodes, a bass, a guitar, and a piano, and a drum kit, and I'm terrified. I'm like, you have to have songs to, to make music in here. I don't have songs, you know? Uh, what I have is just creative input, you know? So for me, if I see like some synths or a lot of guitar pedals, I'm like, oh, okay, I can work in here, you know? But if it's, yeah. if it's just like a, a Rhodes... I'm like, I, that, I, I can't work. I can't, I can't do this. Yeah. Like I'm not, oh, see, uh, that's, I'm not yeah. the guy. Um, so that, you know, so that's, that's, 
that's that's fun just to kind of just to play and mm-hmm. you know since have so many deep layers that uh they never get boring you know mm-hmm. even like tapping into like the modular stuff it's just like holy shit like this is a life lifelong exploration here that i've can can just dive into uh, so the arrangements on the record feel relatively sparse so did you have to go through a lot of like building things up and removing and then how many of the original ideas actually made the rec you know the final arrangement because in fact there's a whole lot of elements going on in, in each tune now and i think that's that that was something that's about that's a battle that i always have when it comes to electronic mm. music i think it's hard to keep it minimal. So I'm actually glad to hear you say that because for me, it feels mm. pretty full. And I think yeah. if I have a criticism on my own solo music is I, I add too much to it. And some of the, the best dance, classic dance tracks are what Stell and I wanted to do. It's very minimal. It's like three or four elements. Yeah. And so we tried really hard to do that, but I, I'm, I'm, like a melodic beast like i have to add some type of melody to everything i, I you know and i think that's why i i i really love apex twin is because he was always able to take some really kind of hardcore percussive stuff and, and add a melody to it and suddenly it's just like this intensely Gorgeous. beautiful yeah. yeah beautiful thing uh and so i'm i've i'm kind of haunted with that beast a bit in me where i have to kind of add melody and what happens with that as soon as you add that element then you start building it you know what i mean oh we gotta take it out here oh there should be a change here and mm-hmm. and uh and then you gotta be really careful because you're like oh we're actually starting to build a song uh we need mm. to pull back you know <laughs> we gotta get back into that that dance category where nothing happens except for dropouts and you mm. you're just hearing dropouts and you know, adding and subtracting. It's not really mm-hmm. how do we change key or mm-hmm. uh, get Lots out of, of this, you know? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's, that's, I think that was the hardest thing about making the record for me was how far do we take it? Like, we really want to keep it minimal to the stuff that we really love, but yet these songs are kind of coming out of us. And it's, this is just kind of a natural m- melody that we're both hearing. So there's songs like Young, I think, on the record that we made it very melodic and and really beautiful and i think for out of any of the songs i feel like that song sounds like stella and i the most um that's kind of that's 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 what we sound like i think if Mm -hmm. we could make a whole record it sounded like that we probably would but we also want to make just like banging techie stuff too where it doesn't have any of that melody yeah. Um, so that so, so that 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 balance was you know it's it's tough to find to find that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I agree with everything that Brian said about adding, being really aware of not adding too much information or not necessarily being too clever with things. You know, you can you can have moments where you kind of flex an idea, a musical idea, or a rhythmic idea that um that keeps keeps someone keeps the like sustains interest over the course of a song or a mm. record. But um but a lot of the music that I listen to and I most enjoy are just these like two very, you know, two elements with hard intention. 
really. Two or three elements with mm-hmm. heart intention. And that to me feels you can always feel when something has like the sound of that thing is just so vital. It really doesn't need a lot more, you know, and, and the more that you add to it and the more that you harmonize with it and the more that you tweak it and the more that you drop it out and bring it back in, it takes the power away from, from, yeah. um, from the song. And I think you could say the same about playing an instrument, like with drumming, when I was younger, I just, it was just too much. It was so many ideas and just so much, you know, for lack of a better word, there was a lot of vanity involved when you are learning, you're getting your chops up and and you just want to, you know, you have a lot to prove. And I think that also happens when you're making music. It still happens to me when I make music. I, like, don't even realise that my intentions are going there till I listen back to something or, well, it's just... There's so much going on. It's too much information. So I think, you know, I think it's that same kind of idea can be traded to electronic music and, and composition, I guess. That's ultimately what it is, um, is, you know, that same thing of like sometimes you're playing drum. I listen back to some performances where I'm playing with Warpaint or playing with other people and I'm like, I wish I didn't fill there or I wish I didn't do that. Like it's, it's, I'm, I'm spoiling the pocket in that moment. And I know mm-hmm. what I was thinking. I, I was thinking well, this is kind of tricky, but then I listened back to it and it's like, it's not, it doesn't sound good. Mm-hmm. It doesn't give me that same, yeah. what, what is actually satisfying is the idea and the commitment to the idea and the slight variations on that idea. That's like my whole, whole musical philosophy these days. And every time I, stray from that I notice it and it bothers me so at this moment I might go back to um you know uh, um making music that is more um layered and complex and 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 intellectual or cerebral but at the moment that's not the music that I enjoy really listening to I mean I don't listen to like you know brainless music necessarily it's just it's just it's a different intention like this is is what i'm trying to say and i think that that's what satisfies me that's what nourishes me musically and so that's what i hope to kind of express as a musician or as a composer or in, in whatever way yeah. you know that just and, resonates and for me, with me for me it's repetition you know that repetition is what i'm attracted i've always been attracted to it so at five minutes of, of the same thing kind of happening with just variations of that, like, you know, that's why I love kraut rock and yeah. techno and, you know, house music, all that stuff. I'm just really, that's, or even Sonic Youth, stuff, you know, bands like that, that just really focus on repetition. Mm-hmm. That's where I find my peace, you know, and I can really get engaged if there's too much happening, too many changes. And, and when, and, and similar to your, your war paint thing where you're like, oh, I shouldn't do that Phil. For me, mm. I, I can listen back to some of my catalog and I'm like, oh, I just put three songs in one song. That's really cool. <laughs> like that great idea there, Brian, to yeah. have a full change, you know? <laughs> like I've got all these yeah. ideas. I just got to get yeah. them out and, and Four, four minutes, you yeah. know. I hope you like it. Yeah. And people are just like, huh? What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How do you know when a song is finished? Oh man, that's the question, isn't it? That's like 
How long is the pace of string? Yeah. Uh, is, there a, is there a god? Is there a god? <laughs> is the song finished? I think, honestly, like, I think that's what's really good about having another person to collaborate with is that sometimes, you know, I would, if I was by myself, I would maybe question the end point of a song or of a piece of music. So it's nice to have this other person that you hopefully you agree to the moment when the song is finished and when it's satisfying to both of us. Also, we can influence each other and say, well, hey, you know, we text each other, hey, do you actually think this bit, this breakdown in this song, could that actually change in this way? And it's like, no, don't touch it. Don't touch it. It's my yeah. favourite part, you know, and then you're like, okay, mm-hmm. okay good. But without that I love, input. I love that, yeah. Yeah. Without that input, honestly, if these were two solo records, they probably would have taken three, maybe three times as long to make. I don't know. But I don't. I can't speak for Brian, but I know that I would take a lot longer if I didn't have somebody to validate the idea or validate the the endpoint of something. So I I think I, it's really influenced by the collaboration for me personally. I think I've become pretty sensitive to that of knowing when to stop. And for me, it's if you're exhausted by it, <laughs> if you're waiting for something to happen, and you're making a few attempts at it, then you should maybe think about leaving at that point like mm-hmm, it's time to mm-hmm. maybe stop um and what's interesting about that question related to our record is that we thought the record was done right before the pandemic happened we were like oh let's you know we've got an opportunity here like let's get it delivered let's get it mastered let's you know let's get this thing done and then suddenly the world shut down and we're like, oh, this might not be a good time to release a to new release project anything, yeah. can't tour it or anything. Yeah. So yeah. we sat on it for like a year while everybody was, you know, in their own pod situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then as we kind of started revisiting after like seven or eight months, or at least for me, I'd be like, Stella, what do you, I don't know if this is done. What do you yeah. what do you think if we add a hi hat pattern here? Or yeah, something yeah, like yeah. That? So we sat we sat on what we thought was a finished product for a oh gosh, almost a year. And then yeah. decided to revisit some of the tracks that didn't make the record mm-hmm. again. I'm like, let's just have a listen to this and be like, oh, I, I like that. I forgot about that mm-hmm. track. And then I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, well, let's let's get this mixed and see if this is going to work. So we ended yeah. up having a finished product, sitting on it for eight months, which was kind of a luxury, to be honest. Totally. I feel like if, if anybody could do that, it'd be nice. Like, I'm going to deliver a record, but then you've got eight months to think about it, you listen to it. Period, and then yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so we were able to kind of take off a few tracks put in some new ones, add some layers and, you know, and then feel it felt complete at, you know, around, you know, what we delivered, I, I think felt pretty, pretty complete. Yeah, I agree. But yeah, that's a, t- that's a tough, that's a tough, <laughs> that's a tough one to know because it just depends on how long you want to sit on. You don't ever have to finish a song if you don't want to, you could, yeah. it could be like a lifelong situation i'm yeah. sure there are a lot of musicians out there who have that they have mm. demos i know i have demos that are 25 years old mm. on my computer that i just will pull back up and be like oh, i still like this yeah but i have no idea what to do with it yes mm. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> i mean i can close it yeah i i hate the feeling i've just had this feeling a lot with with bands and with 
um, other material where you're just like everyone hates the song. It's mm. been worked on to death. It's been all the joy has been just like mm. sucked out of it over time. And it's really just like that thing of like nitpicking something, maybe not loving it as much as you should have or appreciating it as much as, as you should have before you started getting in there and tweaking it. Losing the perspective of like what actually is this? What are the what are the essential elements of this song or this piece of music? And I think I I definitely have learned to like never get to that place. And if you get to that place, then it's not going on the record. And mm. it, and it there, needs it needs gr- years to breathe. Perhaps you know. there's some great Tom Petty quote I remember about that where he talked oh. about. No song should ever have more than four or no five elements and mm. take more than two hours or something like that. Mm. You know, he was like, beyond that, it's become a task or a mm. chore. He's like, even if the song's there or it's not, I can't remember. Mm. I'm mm-hmm. obviously paraphrasing, but I, I remember that really stuck with me just thinking, like, yeah, if you can't really make the song happen within four or five elements and you know, like that creative period that we were, that we were kind of talking about, Stella, where mm-hmm. we're inspired by a song and we had a kick drum mm-hmm. to it. And, you know, within that within that two hour window, you you kind of have your you have a, song. Yeah. You know, you, you have yeah. it, um, and you enjoy it, and then you're like, okay, we'll come back to it later. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times, that is that's the meat yeah. right there, and then it's only like a little bit of stuff. Yeah, but if you have like several weeks and days that you're just spending hours on it, I think you might want to move on, yeah. you know? Well, we're, we're at the end of the hour here, so I have, this might be the hardest question for each of you to answer, but most of our listeners are acoustic drummers. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to send them with some things to check out. So what would you be your two or three records for electronic music for someone who mm-hmm. is interested in it but doesn't wow. really know where to start? Mm-hmm. Um, um, or I would say iconic, an iconic drum programming, drum manipulating electronic record would be Square Pushes Feed Me Weird Things. That would be yeah, like was- top of my list for for you know a drummer like a it's a gateway drug for an acoustic drummer that maybe listens to a lot of you know king crimson a lot of fusion jazz things like that Mm -hmm. like um square pusher is very influenced by that world and i think there's like a really really easy comfortable bridge between those two worlds and you'll hear a lot of those ideas um kind of yeah like refreshed and and reimagined on square pushes records but especially especially that one i would start with that and i would say my one first one that comes to mind that still blows my mind is and i mean it's very stereotypical but it's apex twin the drukes record d-r-u-q-s i think mm-hmm. um their tracks on there like melt face six and like Boldhorzen, you know, he has all these strange names for stuff. But if you listen to the drum programming on that record and on some of those tracks, mm. I still, as you know, 25 years into making electronic music, kind of have no idea how he's getting that sort of level of programming because mm-hmm. if you just went in and started doing all those MIDI notes and stuff, it's, I mean, it would just, it seems like it would take years to get it it's back. so advanced so it's kind of so advanced 
So for any drummer, you know, when you listen to that programming, it has a human, even though it's very robotic, I know that this is, it still has like this kind of human element. I think that any drummer can really enjoy it because it's like, listen, Bernard Purdy playing ghost notes or something, you know, it's got that same detailed vibe Mm -hmm. where you're just hearing these like little things happening and you're Mm -hmm. like, wow, that's, that's really good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm trying what to else? think of a third one. I mean, we, for drummers, I mean, we we are very um, reverent of like of um, Mark Bell, anything that LFO does. But mm-hmm. I think just he he's an amazing example of a, a very organic sounding drum programmer and synth programmer, mm-hmm. and very musical. Um, but I also would probably have to mention I love. Um, our friend Sam from Floating Points, um, he his record Crush, I would say, is like really it's a feat of drum programming and it's a more recent addition to the kind of electronic music world that um, that I think is really impressive and really swung and really organic and he's an incredible musician in his own right. So he he's he's able to to kind of translate that into into electronic music tones and and I think there's a lot to to absorb on that record. Beautiful. That, thank yeah. you guys so much. So what's next? Any more live shows coming up? Yeah, I think we're going to do something in LA, something in London in the next um, few months um, and maybe maybe make some new um, music in the meantime, but yeah, just focusing on on promoting the record and and doing some fun um special shows in the meantime awesome well thank you guys so much thank Thank you you. much appreciated i hope you enjoyed that hang with stella and brian of belief and learn maybe a little bit you know if you're interested in electronic dance music or producing or working with drum machines hopefully you learned a bit there i know i learned a ton i've got a ton of electronics over here in this closet that i've basically shelled for the past year i'm going to be bringing them back out and see what i can get into we are going to be posting that entire interview unedited so both parts together over on the drum factor direct youtube channel so if you don't subscribe to that channel please do so there's a lot of interesting content we're posting over there constantly exclusive content long form content all the podcasts are archived over there So yeah, go check out the Drum Factor Direct YouTube channel and be on the lookout for the complete interview with Stella and Brian over there. Now it is time for a second lesson with Tom Wint. This is our Jazz Drumming Essentials series. This time Tom is talking about how to play the feet in a traditional jazz setting. Check it out. folks, Thomas Wendt back with you here for Drum Factory Direct. Welcome back to this series that we are doing on the basic fundamentals of playing American jazz music on the American drum set. Thank you so much for being with us again today. Now, if you watched the first lesson in this series, we basically dealt with becoming familiar with and assimilating the general swinging pulse of this music, just playing quarter notes along with some great recordings. Now today, what we're going to focus on is 
the feet and all that we are doing with the feet when we're playing this basic jazz groove. Now, if you watch that first lesson, you heard me use the phrase feathering the bass drum. Now, if this is a new phrase to you, the concept is really pretty simple. All you're going to be doing is playing a very, very light four to the bar on the bass drum with the hi-hat nice and strong and consistent on beats two and four. So at a nice slow tempo, your feet should look and sound something like this. All right, I hope you could see and hear the dynamic separation between the two feet. The bass drum really needs to be very soft and the hi-hat is really fairly strong. Now, at this point, I should point out something that's really important. All of this advice that I'm giving you is for general playing purposes. There are gonna be many times when you're playing this music where you might not wanna feather the bass drum all the time. You might not wanna play the hi-hat on two and four in a nice, strong, consistent way. That's totally fine, and there are plenty of musical moments where this is not called for. But for general playing purposes, we all need to be able to feather the bass drum and play the hi-hat consistently on two and four at a lot of different tempos, and most importantly, we need to be able to control this. Very, very important. Now, if you're finding it difficult to maintain that dynamic separation, even at a slow tempo like what I just demonstrated, don't worry about it. Put the metronome on at a nice slow tempo and work with the metronome for a, a little while until you start to feel more comfortable. As you feel more comfortable, grab those headphones and find a good recording at a slow tempo and play along with the recording just with your feet and see if you can lock in with the bass player on the recording while maintaining that dynamic separation between your feet. So if we kick the tempo up just a little bit more to a more medium tempo, your feet should sound and look something like this. Okay, so before we go any further, I want to explain the relationship between feathering the bass drum and the bass player. Remember, the bass player is your friend, and we want to keep it that way. So when we're feathering the bass drum, really the function of that is to support the bass player's notes. So the visual that I always think of in my mind, if my fist is the bass player's note, the bass drum is sort of the plate that the bass player's note is sitting on. We're just supporting what he or she is playing. And the other thing about feathering the bass drum is, it's really the bottom of our sound. That's something that's very important to remember while you're playing with other musicians and you're doing this, okay? Now, if we bring the tempo up even a little bit further to a medium to medium up tempo, your feet should look and sound something like this. Now a common question that you might have is how fast do I feather the bass drum? Do I feather it at all tempos or just some tempos? It's a great question and I feather the bass drum at most tempos. When the tempo really gets fast, I'm not going to feather the bass drum because even if I can do it real light, it can still at a really fast tempo, it can still make the beat feel a little heavy, which most of the time we really don't want. Now, 
This is about how fast I will feather the bass drum personally, like this. All right, so before we wrap up today's lesson, I'm gonna give you an example going back to a much slower tempo with everything together. Ride cymbal, bass drum feathering, hi-hat on two and four, and the left hand comping. Now, one thing you'll notice is when we comp, a lot of times we're using the snare drum, but we also use the bass drum to comp as well. And one thing I want you to notice is I am feathering the bass drum, but when I use the bass drum in my comping, after I'm done playing whatever figure I'm gonna play on the bass drum, I don't go right back to feathering immediately. I'll give it a beat, a beat and a half, maybe even as much as two beats, and I'll sneak the feathering bass drum back in nice and lightly so I'm not disturbing the groove, so to speak. So everything put together at a nice, slow tempo will sound and look like this. that's going to do it for today's lesson. I hope this has given you some more insight into what goes into playing some of the basic, basic elements of this music. Now next time we are going to be focusing on the ever important ride cymbal beat. But until then, take your time with this stuff. Get more and more comfortable with it. Keep playing along with those classic recordings. I look forward to seeing you guys next time. And as always, stay safe and stay close to the music. All right, again, we are, we've posted that lesson separately already over on the Jump Factor Direct YouTube channel, so go check it out there if you wanna reference it back again without having to skip through this whole episode. It is time for Shop Talk. This week, I grabbed my good buddy, Jefferson Schallenberger of Sugar Percussion. He, you know, I attended his snare drum workshop a couple years ago where I got to build a snare and hang out with him and Noah at the factory and, Santa Cruz, and they had a great he, they had a great way of explaining the science behind snare beds, which was completely opposite of what I thought a snare bed did, but the point of it was. So I wanted to get him back on the show anyway, and I thought, you know, why not let him explain instead of me totally butchering the, the science behind snare beds? Let's let Jefferson explain it. He even has a whiteboard. So here we go. What? Is a snare bed and why do we need it with Jefferson Schallenberger of Sugar Percussion. Where is this your office in your new space? Last time it was completely empty. <laughs> so there's a whiteboard on the wall. So it's we right. have that. Uh yeah, this is I think the same space. Um not a lot has been done here. This was basically a kill room when I moved in. Um it's slightly less so now. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The 12 inch drain in the floor has been plugged up. So uh was that a toilet? I mean, was that a piss pot? No, it was a kill room. <laughs> you think I'm kidding? Oh. <laughs> All yeah. right, before I ask you about snare beds, how is the progress with the shop? Are you, are you getting there? Um, I guess it would depend on how you define getting there. 
you're making is, progress. It is moving forward. Yeah, by the definition of the term progress, yes, there's been progress. Some days feel like there are big leaps, and some days it feels uh, Sisyphean, I think is the term. Ah, you're too smart. <laughs> the fist, pull, pushing the boulder up the uh up the oh right yeah. right right um right now it's mostly efforts on the home part right now um and the curse of knowing how to do all this stuff is coming into play because then i want to do it all exactly how i want it and the images in my head are quite beautiful mm. and it takes a lot of time to match those images uh did so, you model it out like you do for other designs? No. In my head. Yeah. That's exciting and I bet a bit torturous too, because that's your space. It's got to be better than anything else you've ever made, right? Yeah, there's a there's there's a a it all falls under the heading, I'm gonna die in this space. It better be it better look nice. <laughs> as my as my death rattle from the floor, I wanna look at, you know, how does that wall terminate at the <laughs> uh, yeah it's both incredibly lucky and i couldn't find a better word than torturous yeah yeah what well, has been the, the biggest uh, life ethos whatever that i've chosen so it's not foreign <laughs> right right <laughs> tortured soul from the suburbs of palo alto <laughs> what are you most proud of thus far uh not killing myself yeah that's what i'm with electricity and all the dangerous stuff no for the overwhelm the emotional oh, yeah. <laughs> oh you mean you've met that. contractors none of this is hard they're all knuckleheads yeah. it's it's just uh uh i guess chewing on all of it without choking yeah uh there are bits um i spent a week making a hole in a wall to put my three favorite books so they're flush with the wall because I saw it in a Japanese architecture magazine 10 years ago and I swore I'd do it one time. And so instead of doing pain work, I spent a week doing that. And I love That's amazing. It. It me happy. <laughs> that is amazing. It's absurd, completely absurd <laughs> and counter to all, all things pragmatic. But it, yeah, I'm proud of shit like that. It's all the stupid stuff that mostly only I notice. <laughs> yeah. Well, talking, talking about stupid stuff, let's talk about snare beds. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Mike Blunt Segway Dawson. <laughs> uh, I thought I, I thought you were letting me ramble a little too long. Yeah, well, you know, it's supposed to be a, a variety show here, so oh, we got to keep God. it keep it snappy, Jeff. Okay. We, All right, what can I? So, well, the, the I I was at your workshop. God, I don't know how many years ago it was. Now, three years ago, two and a half years oh. ago. Was that you? Yeah, I was there. <laughs> I was there, and I don't remember how, what, how you set it up. I think you asked everyone like what does a snare bed do or how does a snare bed work? And I, it was like one of those, like a science teacher asked me, why is it colder in the winter? Those type of questions. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I think I know, but I really don't know. Yeah. And the way you explained it, I think it was very different than what I've heard before, but I couldn't recall it. So I want you to, you don't mind. Was it about a basketball? I don't remember specifically, but I remember it was, it was just totally different than anyone I've ever heard explain it before. Well, I had someone, I mean, I'd love to claim it as my own because I thought it was clever or it was the first time that I ever had it well explained to me. Um, uh, and I don't remember where I saw it. Um, but basically it was, uh, how do you, well, what are they supposed to do? What are, I guess I should back up. 
you want even tension of the snare wires on the on the snare side head. So if you had, but you only get two points to pull it from. There are only two points that you can introduce tension. How do you make those two points translate into even tension across the whole thing? And someone said about if you had a had a piece of string and you pulled it on either side of a box, it would be tight at the corners and loose in the middle. Mm -hmm. But if you could curve that box and make it more like a globe, and then you still pulled from the ends, then you could get even tension. So how do you make that bottom head go from a flat plane into a convex plane? And the only way to do that is that the ends of that convex plane scoop out the drum so it's actually lower than the middle. Does that make sense? Is it, the look on your face says, this is not how I remember it. But it's so it's it's rounded this way down versus well, it's not a globe. It's a hey Mike, let's go to the whiteboard. <laughs> I bought this this eight foot thing. I'm gonna use it. Has anybody done this Please. before yet on your on your podcast? And so a whiteboard first. It's exclusive here. Nice. Okay. <laughs> let's see if this is working. Here's your box, and here's your string. And you can only pull down, is that all in sight? Yeah, yeah. You can only pull down right there, and it's gonna be it's gonna be tight there, and it's gonna be tight there, but it's gonna be loose there. Yep. Okay. Well, if you take that box and you can make it like that, and then you have same string, and you pull down, now it's gonna be evenly tense. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So, first pen is now running out of ink. So, if that's the shape that you want, but we're doing it on a drum, <laughs> and we want it to go like that, the only way we can do that is to carve out here and here. So these points on this, which is otherwise, you know, this is flat to here all the way until you start carving out however wide your snare beds are. And I've seen them, you know, from here to, well, to nothing. Um, if you get this part lower, these two parts lower than this plane, and then you crank the shit out of the head or the hoop, it'll bend the head into a convex plane. So uh -huh. if you look through the snare beds, um, you'll cite a convex thing. I just got a low battery warning. So that now, now I'm remembering because I think my initial answer was the snare beds allow the head to sink. Therefore, the wires sink into the head, which was totally opposite. Well, it's, it's the start of it. It does allow the, <clears throat> the head to sink. But what you're doing is you're you're thinking about it just in that one spot but if you go further that if it sinks there when it's part of the aggregate of the whole head it is the low spot but it leaves a high spot in the middle and then you've created a convex plane and then you can pull yeah you're making it like a basketball like a huge basketball <laughs> and so the deeper right. the deeper you go the more convex you can make it but there's going to be a a point of limited returns when you can't crank the hoop in there as much. 
And that's uh-huh. why, I mean, I've actually, I've gotten calls from people who set down, they receive their drum and they set it down on the bottom head and it kind of rocks. It's like, I think something's broken or warped or something. It's like, you don't know that that's actually supposed to be tacoed in there mm-hmm. in order to create that, that bulge on the head. It's just that, that it. easy. That was the mind blowing bit there. I, I was thinking opposite forever. I always thought it it created less tension on the head, therefore the wires could push into the head more, but it's not that. Yep. Sweet. Did you have uh, a lot of experimenting to find the right depths and all that, or did you kind of um, just discover it? I grabbed the most expensive snare I could find and copied that and started there and then sort of made it wider, deeper, shallower, narrower. And then, and it's all just sort of a, you start to get more of one thing and give up another thing. Um, and it was, I guess we ended up close to that one. Um, we went pretty far. Usually the way I'll do it is go so far that you're often in where it's clearly wrong and then pull back until where it gets right again. Um, I found most of them to be insufficient. Uh, really? Most of the commercially dug snare beds to be insufficiently mm. deep and insufficiently wide. That was the problem is if you, if you have, you're trying to create, I mean, everything you're, you're introducing curves, but you don't want to introduce a curve too radically or too quickly. Cause then you get kinks and things. Um, you want it to organically flow from this plane into this. So it needs to spread out. You need, if you have a, especially you have a die cast or a single flange hoop, that's thick metal and you you're trying to torque it in there. You can't just have it go flat, drop in. I mean, I've seen snare beds that are sharp angles. That doesn't, mm. that I think is based on what you were thinking that you're just carving a ditch to bury mm-hmm. the snare wires, but that doesn't, it doesn't make the shape that you need. And then you get loose snares in the middle. There you go. That's At it, least man. this is what Noah tells me. I don't make the drums. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm the only one who didn't know that that's what snare beds did to the bottom head actually makes it, you know, bend up so the wires fit evenly, which makes me, again, rethink the concept of detuning around the snare beds to get the snares to sit better versus tuning them tighter. Some exploration for me to be to be done with that. But I hope you enjoyed that little little hang with Jefferson. I'm sure we'll get him back on at some point with some other super nerdy topics. But for now, let's shift over to a few listener questions. The first one here is from Lawrence. This was a, a actually an Instagram DM that I got a while ago. I thought it was appropriate to share on the show. Do you have any recommendations for a portable stand for a laptop and mixer for a backing track rig on gigs? Yes, I use, uh, there's, there's many options, but I use the Gibraltar laptop stand. It's a, it's a pretty sturdy stand that you can fit a laptop and I use that for the mixer and then I have a Gibraltar tray underneath that fits my tiny little oh sorry I use the I use the stand for the computer and I use a Gibraltar little um, multi tray for the mixer that's super sturdy Um, the tray has sides on it so the mixer sits in there and it's not going to fall off the the laptop portion is completely adjustable. You can angle it. You can adjust the separation of it. Um, so that's a really nice, high-quality option I would highly recommend. Um, and then other than that, what I've done uh, when I have to do it really quickly and I, or if I can't take that stand, 
I just use two hard cases, snare drum hard cases, because I usually have, um, I usually take two snare drums with me anyway, so just put them, you know, one to the left underneath the hi-hat, one to the right by the floor tom. You can put the mixer on one, computer or electronics or whatever you're using on the other, or you can put them side by side. That kind of saves me from having to take any extra gear. I'm already have those cases with me anyway, so I just use them, put a towel over them, and I can fit my electronics and mixer and stuff on that. Hopefully that helps. The second question here comes from Glenn. This is one that was sent last week, so I'm going to answer his second question. What are some tips for pre-show preparation, stretching, sound check, etc.? This is a, it's a good question. Lately, for the past few years, uh, I haven't had a pre-gig routine because I do all of my preparation dur during the day before I even get my day started. So every morning, I do a very strict warm-up routine on the practice pad that involves, it's the Benny Greb language of drumming, uh, all the hand variations, if you've seen that, and I do the triplet version of that. I run through it three different tempos, 130, 140, 150, every single day, and I have I do it with the click on the third triplet partial, all the variations, then I put the click on the second partial, all the variations, then I bump it up. So it's 130 with the click on the third, 130 with the click on the two, 140, click on the third, 140, click on the two, the middle triplet, I should be saying, then 150 with the click on the third triplet partial, 150 with the click on the middle partial. Then I go through, uh, what do I do next? I do the Joe Morello uh, stick and sticking control studies exercise uh, at 200 BPM with the click on the third triplet partial. I do that several times. And then I shift over into playing three rudimental snare drum pieces at 120. I do three camps with the click. What I do for this is I set the click to 30 and that is to give me one click per measure. I play three camps all the way through. Then I play two uh, Charlie Wilcoxon pieces rolling in rhythm all the way through and then roughing the drag all the way through. That is my everyday warm up. Um, it's, a, it's a combination of a timing study because you've got the click on the off beats and the whole notes. It's warming up my chops because all these exercises are, are pretty challenging. It's mental sharpness. It's it's um, sound. I'm always you know trying to get the sticks to resonate in my hands so getting my grip to be nice and loose. And then it's just the consistency of doing it. Therefore, I know once I get through that routine, I can play exactly the way I could play the day before. You know, and I, it's it's just a, a mental game for me to where I know I've done the work. To play something that day i could go to a gig right away i could play a gig 12 hours later i feel like my hands mind and body are ready to roll so then when i get to the gig depending on what it is if i have any time i might do some basic stretching i should also add in the morning right after i do uh, my practice pad routine i usually do 15 minutes of yoga some basic 12 basic movements of that the stretch I take a nice 45 minute walk, a brisk walk. So I'm getting some exercise in. All that stuff is kind of just getting me, you know, the routine of, of being mentally and physically in the same spot every day. So then I can just go play and I don't have to worry about it. But at the gig, I might stretch a little bit. Um, if it's cold, I might get the pad out and just warm up, just play some rudiments a little bit before. Um, 
and that's really kind of it. It's it's just largely doing all the preparation before the day even gets started. So once I get to the gig, if if we have no time to set up or no time to warm up or whatever, I'm 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 ready to play. I don't have to like force a warm up routine if if there's not time for it, that type of thing. So that's kind of it. And you other you other bit of it with stretching and. We're going to cover a lot of that topic in a future shop talk section. So um, we've got my good buddy, Brandon Green, who's going to talk about the drum mechanics stuff. So we'll go in deep on that, I think, starting next week. But hopefully that helps. Try to do all your preparation before you even eat breakfast. Hopefully that'll help. All right, we're coming to the end of the show here for the warehouse pick of the week. Uh, we just got back in stock the bass drum pedals that um, they're like lightweight. Uh, I've got one right over here. So this is talking about it. Let me just show it to you. So we just got a, a fresh batch of these. These are lightweight. This beater is not the one that came with it. This is a head speed kick beater that I'm, I'm messing around with. But it comes with a, a standard felt beater, round felt beater. It's just a super lightweight, effective, you know, collapses up. It doesn't, you know, you can fold it up, throw it in your bag. It works. Single, single spring tension, single chain. You know, it's just a lightweight, effective feels nice and smooth i've been using it on my kit here in this office for six months every day i did have to wd-40 the the axle once it was starting to squeak but it's been solid ever since no no signs of wear whatsoever so if you're looking for super light affordable you know compact bass drum pedal go check it out it, it's at drumfactordirect.com just search for dfd lightweight bass drum pedal and you'll find it so that's it, the DFD lightweight bass drum battle. That's the warehouse pick of the week. And that is it for episode two of season two here of the Drum Candy Podcast. Once again, if you have any questions you want to submit, send them to drumcandypodcast at gmail.com or to the Drum Factor Direct Instagram page. Make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please share this this show if you're enjoying it. Um, write us a review over on iTunes if you dig five-star review all that stuff helps get the show ranking higher so more people can find it um yeah i'm done talking for this week so we're gonna let uh, luke just play us out see you next week <laughs>